Thank you, Melissa and Kirk. Appreciate you very much. If you want, if you want to get to know them a little bit better, uh, come join the choir. Okay, that's uh, that's our new choir director, and uh, uh, I know that they could use uh, some extra bodies so if, uh, and voices. So if the Lord moves on your heart in that way, I would certainly encourage you to take that step. Uh, our scripture reading this morning, as we start a new series, is going to be in Luke chapter nine. We're going to start with verses 51 through 62, and then jump over to chapter 10 as we look at verses 25 through 37, one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you are able. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now jump over with me to chapter 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil on, and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord of love and truth, as we come once again to your word, we pray that uh, this time will be one filled with the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our community as we, to, as we seek to follow you more deeply. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said this Sunday, we are starting a new series in the Gospel of Luke on what I've called radical revitalization. 
as uh, we go through the series, I'll highlight uh, more carefully the countercultural, radical nature of the gospel to our lives. But uh, I think it's once again valuable to, and it's important to remember, and maybe, we, maybe we're learning for the first time, how truly world-altering and radical is the calling that we have been given in Jesus Christ. In uh, my first three months with you, I've spent the majority of that time talking and preaching about prayer. And I did so because I believe that with all my heart that the Lord who will bring us that renewal, and it's only in him, that he alone will do it. So that's why he calls us to daily prayer, seeking him in renewal in our hearts and in our minds and on our lives together here at Parkway. Now, I've preached those sermons because I want to lay the foundation in prayer. But the second layer of this foundation is Jesus Christ himself. And uh, I, uh, that's why I'll be spending this time in the Gospel of Luke and then in the Gospel of John as we fully focus on Jesus, who he truly is, what he has done, and, and his calling in our midst, in our calling in our lives. Now, I'll be going back and looking at the, the early chapters of Luke as well as we get into Christmas and Advent season. But I'd like to begin today here, right in the middle. I'm, I'm doing what uh, good Israelite Hebrews do. They start in the middle. So uh, we'll be looking at one of the most well-known sections in Scripture. In fact, did you know that the parable of the Good Samaritan has inspired everything from paintings to sculptures, satires, poetry, films, and even laws, right? There's the Good Samaritan law. We've become almost over-familiar with the story to the point where I think we've lost the essential original meaning of this passage. And to understand it better, we really need to get a little bit better sense of the context in which Jesus tells us this parable. And so that's why I'm starting back in chapter 9. Now, uh, if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me and follow along there. This, uh, this section starts with geography. It tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, or as the NIV translates it, he resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. Now, this isn't a straight-line trip. He goes to the south of Jerusalem in Bethany and then later travels between Samaria and Galilee in the north. So the point is uh, more about spiritual destiny than it is about geography, more about the capital of Israel. See, he's going to Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah will be rejected and handed over to be crucified, as Jesus told his disciples back in chapter 9. 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, uh, this journey first starts by ministering in the land where the Samaritans live. And so point one on your outline, if you uh, like to take notes, you'll find that in the middle of your bulletin there in the insert. And point one is this. The Jews viewed Samaritans as traitors and half-breeds. Many decades before, 
The people who lived in Samaria were Jews who had intermarried with the pagan nations and were therefore seen as unfaithful to God and unfaithful to God's people. The Jews hated the Samaritans and considered them to be sometimes referred, as they sometimes referred to them, lower than dogs. So Jews traveling through Samaria to Jerusalem would spend the night in the last city in Jewish territory and then on the next day walk all the way through Samaria to the first Jewish city in Judea. That way they could remain ceremonially clean and not have to be uh, dirtied by those dogs. But Jesus doesn't think the way the average Israelite does about Gentiles and even those hated Samaritans. The disciples are clearly not very happy here in chapter 9 with how the Samaritans interact with and respond to Jesus. So they ask Jesus, should they call down a fiery judgment from heaven on these Samaritans whom they hate? You know, like Elijah once did in 2 Kings chapter 1. They thought that something as serious as rejecting God's Messiah deserves instant destruction. But Jesus rebukes them here. Why? Well, we aren't given a great deal of detail from Jesus, but it's clear from what will follow. And this is uh, point two on your outline. That now is not the time for judgment. It's rather a time to offer grace and to warn that judgment and accountability will come. You know, the world often sees our commitment to Jesus as kind of a blind, arrogant exclusivism. But the reality is that for true believers, our wholehearted devotion to Jesus means that with all our hearts, we desire in love for all others around us to share with us in the rich blessings of God that we have received in Jesus Christ. When we, the church, stand for moral character, when we stand for what is right in God's eyes, when we stand for what is true, there are many people who will react strongly against us. They'll see that as dogmatic attempt to control others. And so all our warnings must be out of love. When we warn against immorality, what we're doing is warning against self-destruction, not just of the individual, but even of the community. See, the response of the disciples is a natural one. Hey, let's just wipe these fools off the face of the earth. But Jesus' way is not humanly natural. Jesus' way isn't the way of power and control. Rather, his way is the way of love and continued outreach. Not that there will never be judgment. There will. Judgment will come for each of us when we die or when we die on this side of his return, or when we meet him face to face. And it will come again, it will come when he returns again. But the goal of church today is Jesus' goal. The goal of his body of Christ here is Christ's goal, to continue to reach out in love and share the gospel in our words, in our actions, I think it's encapsulated well in God's vision to Parkway that he gave your vision team and now is our vision here at our church, loving others,
to real life in Jesus. Sadly, uh, <coughs> that's not the experience of many non-Christians today. They've seen way too many angry so-called Christian faces on TV expressing different forms of condemnation and judgment, many going by the name of Christian who present a face of judgment, truth with no love, the realities of sin and hell without the immeasurable love of God and Jesus Christ. It either angers me or breaks my heart when people who don't know Christ get their perception about Christians from those who proclaim only judgment. And that is not Christian. We need to present a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled example. You know, in uh, chapter 9, verses 41 through 44, Jesus enters Jerusalem knowing full well that the people will soon reject him and call for his crucifixion. But if you notice, he isn't angry. Instead, he weeps. Remember when Jesus was on the cross with the pain of the nails in his hands and feet, completely rejected by those he came to save? He wasn't angry with his enemies. In fact, he interceded for them in prayer. See, there will come a time for judgment, but it's not this time. When Stephen was being stoned by the Jews for standing up for Jesus, he too wasn't angry with them. He prayed for their forgiveness. See, the call for us as Christ's church is to love and continue to intercede for those who reject the gospel. Today is the time of intercession. This is the time of reaching out with the love. Churches that are in the midst of renewal, churches that are in the midst of revival and revitalization, know this to be true at their core. See, if we're to follow Jesus, as Jesus calls on three different people in this passage to do that, everything else must take a back seat. Discipleship to Jesus must come first. You know, uh, take a look more closely here. The first person begins with a, a confident statement by a man that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus warns the man, telling him what that will require. It's a radical call of discipleship, not the run-of-the-mill teacher-discipleship relationship that was common in that day. It could and should mean being ready to give up all ties. It requires viewing this journey with total dedication, especially since the Son of Man will not have a home. Look at that. Unlike foxes and birds which have holes and nests, the Son of Man has no home. He's an alien traveling for a short time in a foreign land. Lynn and I have... uh, some dear friends, the, the Rempels, who currently live and minister in Germany. We got to know them while Heinrich and I were both at school at Denver Theological Seminary. We became very close in those years. Shortly after graduating from seminary, I went to pastor a church in Wichita, Kansas, and we invited them to come and stay with us before they were to return to Kyrgyzstan as missionaries. He was uh, He was involved in a leader in the first church 
in Kyrgyzstan after the wall came down there. While they were with us, we uh, introduced them to our church and had him preach a sermon. And he preached from the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He spoke about being a missionary and how it came about that he was called to go to other countries and plant churches. He made it clear that the Great Commission is a call for all disciples. He then said this, which I'll never forget, why do you think that you have not been called to be a missionary? He says it's right there in the Great Commission. Unless you have a clear call not to go out to the missionary field, then you too have been called. And he reminded them, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us, that God has placed each of us into the mission field. And today the mission field is growing and growing all around us, isn't it? See, we too are aliens in a foreign land. In Peter, as Peter put it in his first letter, he describes us as foreigners and exiles. Now the second person comes to Jesus, and he wants to bury his father before joining the group. Now this is a very, very reasonable request. In fact, it would be a priority for a Jew to take care of this for a close family member. As Jesus' words would sound outrageous to the Israelites in Christ's day, Jesus says to the man, let the dead bury their own dead. His message sounds harsh, doesn't it? And on one level it is. But it is very descriptive of what the call to be a disciple of Christ looks like. Everything else in life is to be a is to be is to take a back seat to following Jesus, as I've told you before. Jesus must have first place. More important than caring for the dead is preaching the offer of life. The third man wants to say his goodbyes to his family. And again, Jesus says something that's radically harsh. Those who look back aren't fit for the kingdom. A statement that would remind people of when Lot's wife looked back towards Sodom. See, as foreigners and strangers on this earth, we don't get to cling to the things of this life. We don't get to look back. When Jesus calls us to discipleship, he calls us to come and die to our sinfulness and our past. See, he doesn't just reserve a place for us in heaven, but he calls us to radical transformation into new people. A disciple of Jesus can't cling on to the old life. It's not a call to comfort and ease, health and wealth. It's often a hard road of discipline and a complete realignment of our worldviews and our values. See, to look back while plowing means mistakes in preparing the ground. Instead, it's a focus on the life and call ahead. Jesus doesn't make these shocking and radical statements lightly. It shows how serious Jesus takes discipleship. It's not a part-time job with benefits. And it's not like being a tourist. There isn't a moment in this life when we get to be on break from being Christ's disciple. 
It isn't a hobby. It isn't a nice thing to do on Sunday morning. Even the highest commitments we make to our children, our parents, our spouses, are a distant second to our commitment to Jesus. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So why should we think we get to live in comfort and ease? God's call is for a lifetime. Now, I'm not saying that anyone here is called to full-time mission field work. You might be, but I'm not saying that. But each of us are called to serve wherever the Lord might place us. And each of us must be willing to follow his lead any place he might call. What is certain is that the call to be Christ's disciple must always be a priority over everything else in our lives. It is a full-time, every-moment call to prayerfully realign our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our passions, our commitments to that of Jesus and his love, the message of salvation only in him. Now, uh, this was all just to set the foreground for us to read anew the parable that most of us know as the Good Samaritan. And it starts with a lawyer, an expert in Jewish tradition and law, asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, uh, Jesus first responds with a question of his own. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I don't like being answered, uh, having my question answered with a question. But Jesus seems to do that from time to time. He turns to the law, and he asks this lawyer what he sees it saying. The man replies with, a, some, with part of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was a passage of scripture that the Jews repeated every day to love God completely. Then he moves over to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He says that we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. To, uh, together we refer to them as the great commandment, right? Jesus responds positively. And he tells them that if he does this, he will in fact live. Let me pause here and take a drink of water. I think we sang something about singing until your voice is gone. I, I might be preaching until my voice is gone here. So let me uh, point out here, it wasn't a good, very good place to pause, but uh, this is point three on your outline. Jesus is not saying that a person can receive eternal life through some kind of works theology. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, right before this parable in verse 22, Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, those who truly love God, the Father, must come to know him and love him through Jesus, the Son. To truly love the Father, you must love and be committed to the Son, and as Jesus will make clear later, that those who receive Jesus will also receive forgiveness and God's Holy Spirit. So, uh, do this and you will live makes a complete sense in that context. Now, uh, this particular lawyer wanted to justify himself, as Luke tells us, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer wants to be able to say that he has indeed lived up to this that he has indeed loved his neighbors. 
Now, there's an ancient Jewish wisdom book that helps us understand what the lawyer has in mind. It's called Sirach. And in chapter 12 of that book, it says that sinners shouldn't be helped because they're not your neighbor. So he wants to be able to say that he has loved those that are his neighbor. He wants to be able to say he's loved those in his tribe who have not sinned against him. And this is point four on your outline. The lawyer wants the definition of his neighbors to be his friends, those that he likes or loves, those, in, those close to him, those in his tribe, those in his family that he loves, those that are guaranteed to treat him well. Let me give you another one on your outline, point five. The lawyer wants to be able to see two classes of people, neighbors and non-neighbors. So that way there are some people whom I'm called to love and others I don't have to love, non-neighbors. There was also another common teaching among Jewish leaders in that day that other Israelites, especially those of your tribe, are your neighbors, and Gentiles are not. Who is my neighbor? Why, uh, most Jews of that day would answer something like this. It's the person who is most like me. Isn't that the way that we today build communities and form them in our society? We create communities of people who are like us, there are people who have incomes like us, careers like us, families like us, and usually they have beliefs like us. Those are our neighbors. When we're honest with ourselves, we know that our desired answer to the question of who is my neighbor is exactly the same as that of this lawyer. Jesus gives a completely different answer, though. His story starts with a road. It's a dangerous road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a road that stretches 17 miles and was well known for its dangers. It's like taking a trip through the most dangerous parts of an urban city today at night. So when Jesus says that the man falls among robbers, the audience isn't in the least surprised. Thieves would hide out in the caves that lined the road as it wound through the desert and would attack travelers as they came through. This man loses everything, even his clothes. He's beaten, and they leave him to die. And as he lies there on the road, two potential helpers come along. Both the priest and the Levite, religious and spiritual leaders, approach, and the man's hopes are probably raised. But they both pass by on the other side of the road, to avoid helping him. Why do they pass by? Well, they could have been worried that he might be dead, and touching a dead body would make them ritually unclean. And in their minds, they think that they wouldn't be able to serve their people if they were to have to take time off to become ritually clean again. They probably have good and righteous motives for not helping this man, who was a Jew, one of their tribe, one who is actually like them. Next to come by is a Samaritan. The hated half-breed has pity on the wounded man. 
And in remarkable Greek, a series of verbs are used to indicate how active this Samaritan is in ministering to this stranger. We're told he goes to him. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. He bandages him up. He puts him on his donkey. He carries him to the inn. He takes care of him. And he leaves enough money behind to make sure the man has a place to stay for two weeks to recover. And he doesn't stop there. He even tells the innkeeper to keep a running tab, if you will, so that when he returns, he can pay for any more expenses. In other words, he ministers to him from beginning to end, and he ministers to him with constant action, not just words. Then Jesus asks a very simple question. Which of the three was a neighbor to the the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer can't answer any other way, can he? But he doesn't have the heart to identify this man as a hated Samaritan. He doesn't use the term Samaritan, does he? Look at what he says. The one who had mercy on him. You see, for him, a good Samaritan is an oxymoron. Jesus tells the man to go and do likewise. See, the point of this parable is very clear. The lawyer wants to justify himself. He wants Jesus to tell him that he is doing just fine if he treats others who are just like him with loving kindness. He wants to be reassured that that's as far as God's word wants him to go. But Jesus tells him through this Samaritan's example, and this is point six on your outline, that loving your neighbor means showing active loving actions to those you would most likely resent, and even hate. The hero is the non-neighbor in the eyes of the lawyer and most of those who are witnessing the telling of this parable. Today we use the term good Samaritan to speak about someone who does something thoughtful for someone in need. And while that's a good thing to do, We've somehow succeeded in taming God's word, just like the lawyer wanted to do. He wanted to tame the law, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the reality is that law is a radical and stunning one. And this this story of the prodigal, uh, not the story of the Good Samaritan, makes that quite clear. The priest and the Levite hear and see the need, but it's only the Samaritan who has a heart. So point seven on your outline is that to really love God and be devoted to Jesus and prioritize discipleship means really loving our neighbors, especially those we are more inclined to hate. We're so often inundated with the size of the need of the world that we make that an excuse to not take action to love our neighbors. That's the opposite of the attitude we're supposed to have. Rather, we should be thinking that maybe I can't help everyone, but I can help those around me wherever I'm placed by my Lord. So let me uh, 
be crystal clear about another important part of the message of the Good Samaritan. And it's this. The Samaritan, a hated half-breed outsider that is the hero. The one that shows godly compassion. Make no doubt, and this is point number eight on your outline, this is a clear rejection and repudiation of communal or racial prejudice and tribalism. This is a complete repudiation of it. That views, it's a repudiation of views that, uh, that people that I'm supposed to love are the ones who are most like me. The one to whom I'm to show love and compassion are those who are the ones that are like me. While I can look away from the needs of those whom I'm predisposed to hate or to see as different than me, there's no room in Christian discipleship for prejudice, none whatsoever. Robert, uh, General Robert E. Lee was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Soon after the end of the American Civil War, he visited a church in Washington, D.C. During the communion service, he knelt beside a black man. An onlooker said to him later, how could you do that? Lee replied, my friend, all ground is level beneath the cross. See, when God's compassion begins to work in your heart, you no longer ask the question, who is my neighbor? You ask, to whom can I be a neighbor? Isn't that what Jesus does at the end of this? He asks them, who was a neighbor to this man? And then you also pray, Lord, in your love, transform my heart to love those I am most likely to hate or disdain. So let's together pray that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would see wounded lives and be compassionately willing to truly love Jesus enough to help when nobody else will. It's not something that is natural for us. This isn't easy. It comes from a transformed heart at work where the Holy Spirit works. You know, uh, as I was preparing, I was reminded of a story that started in 1972, when uh, NASA launched the exploratory space probe Pioneer 10. According uh, to Leon Jeriff in Time magazine, the satellite's uh, primary mission was to reach Jupiter, photograph the planet and its moons, and beam data to Earth about Jupiter's magnetic field, its radiation belts, and, and its atmosphere. Scientists regarded this as a bold plan, for at that time, no Earth satellite had ever gone beyond Mars. And they feared that the asteroid belt would destroy the satellite before it could reach its target. But uh, Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission and much, much more. Swinging uh, past the giant planet in November 1973, Jupiter's immense gravity hurled Pioneer 10 at a higher rate of speed toward the edge of the solar system. At one billion miles from the sun, Pioneer 10 passed Saturn. At uh, around two billion miles, it flew past Uranus. Neptune at nearly three billion miles. Pluto at four billion miles. And by 1997, 
25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. And despite all that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam back radio signals to scientists on Earth. And perhaps most remarkable, writes uh, Jeriff, those signals emanate from an 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight and takes more than nine hours to reach Earth. The little satellite that could was in no way qualified to do what it did. Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with a useful life of about three years, but it kept going and going and going. By simple longevity, its tiny 8-watt transmitter accomplished more than anyone thought possible. So it is when we accept the call to be Christ's disciples, when we, too, recognize the greatest commandment to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, when we make Jesus and the values of his kingdom our highest priority, being his disciple our primary identity. God can work through even someone like me, someone with, an, with eight watt abilities. God can make you a neighbor, even to those you're inclined to hate. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful Lord, what a, how important it is to be reminded of this parable that you told. This parable about what it means to love our neighbors, who our neighbors are. Lord, we are uh, so weak, so very far from truly learning and knowing what it means to love to love those who we are most inclined not to love. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts, in our minds, in our communities, as we continue to reach out in love to those who are not of our tribe, to those who are not of our family, to those who we are most inclined we might show them your love to intercede on their behalf, to pray for them, to care for them. Thank you, Lord, for that powerful reminder. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.